and it's hot. It's a sign I've been out of this too long to be back in it. My pocket. Okay. Today's sermon is a part of an ongoing series that started back before Advent. And we took a break during those weeks and we're returning to it on discerning God's heart, God's will, God's purpose for us as a community of people, God's purpose for us as families, as individuals in His divine work throughout our world. And one of the things that we're pairing with these sermons, not so much that that they're uh, totally connected, but we're looking one week at some of God's Word and we're looking another week at some of our personal experiences of God's efforts to lead us and sharing from those. And and we'll have one of those uh, next Sunday morning. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is where uh, my text has been taken because of a, a, a real strong mention by Paul, of praying for wisdom and insight. Uh, The reading is beginning with verse 15 of Ephesians 1. Paul writing this letter, and we we call it Ephesians. Uh, The assumption seems to be made that it was directed to the church at Ephesus, But of all the places Paul traveled and and started churches, this is the one where he stayed the longest. And nobody's mentioned by name. There's no reference to internal problems. It's unusual among Paul's letters in that it's so general to a place you would think he would have so much material to be very specific and because of that, uh, many biblical scholars assume it's, it's a, a circular letter that wasn't just directed to the church at Ephesus, but rather to all of the churches in the province of Asia, where he spent much of his time, the second and third missionary journey traveling that we reference uh, in, in the book of Acts. Uh, I tend to lean that way in my own personal uh, reflection on this as as an explanation of why uh, it's not more directed like 1st and 2nd Corinthians are, for sake of example. Uh, Paul's talking to church in, in a broader sense. And he's holding up the ideal of what God sees in us and for us. In the kingdom sense. Beyond a a specific group of people who congregate uh, from time to time. 
The New Living Translation I'll be reading from has a heading for this section, Paul's Prayer for Spiritual Wisdom. The way he starts off in verse 15, even for me, points toward it being a more uh, general audience. Uh, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus... But, but you were here, Paul, in Ephesus when we first came to faith. Why, why are you referencing having heard of it? Laodicea, Colossae. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you I pray for you constantly, asking that God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those he called his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he's far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. Paul is praying that God would give them spiritual wisdom and insight. What I'm about to do is probably not wise. Even though I'm talking about wisdom. uh, I want to disabuse us of a place that we often go when we hear the word wisdom. Who is the wisest person in the Bible? Conflicting answers. The first response is the one I want to take a few moments exploring and want us to consider, is it really the best example? Solomon. Uh, There won't be any slides this morning for those who are accustomed to them. Uh, You know, I, I put in Google... 
uh, pictures of Solomon and, and got some interesting ones and thought about going with one or two of those. And I thought, nah, folks are just going to get lost in the photographs. And, and I don't want that at all. Um, let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 1 for just a moment. Several of our community have started a reading of the Bible arranged chronologically. And before you get there, for those of you who are doing it, I just want to give you a little heads up. Kings and Chronicles provide some interesting dynamics because they cover a lot of the same material. And from our human perspective, we wonder, well, why didn't they just mash it up and put it all together? And then when we read them, especially if we read them closely or maybe multiple times, we begin to realize that there's a lot of shared material, but there's some very different material. And what's up with that? I mean, those two pairs of books, two pairs of each, are so close together in our Bibles. What's going on here? Kings is a theological reflection on the time period when Israel had many kings. And that theological reflection is answering the question, if we're God's chosen people, why are we in exile? And so Kings has over and over and over again these examples of the failures of Israel's kings to lead God's people in the direction he wanted them to go. And then Chronicles, not written during the exile, but after the return begins, is grappling with this theological question of, will it be different this time? And if so, what will it take for it to be different this time? So, reading from 2 Chronicles, it's post-exile. And it's taking material from the time of the kings to say, if we're going to get a different outcome, we're, we're going to have to look at this. We're going to have to approach this. We're going to have to live this differently. They handle Solomon quite differently as a result. Because there are parts of Solomon's life where he is an incredible exemplar. And there are parts of Solomon's life where he is a miserable failure. So a wholesale, flat-out statement, Solomon, somebody we ought to follow, is not nuanced enough. And I think even with regard to at his best, there's an inherent weakness that we want to guard against. Second Chronicles 1 is that chapter where Solomon asks for wisdom, why his name comes up so often. 
Solomon offers these sacrifices. Verse 6 of chapter 1. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. And Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to David, my father. You've made me king in his place. Now, Yahweh God, let your promise to my father David be confirmed, for you have made me king over a people who are as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me wisdom and knowledge that I may lead this people. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Typically when we talk about Solomon, especially in Sunday school classes, we talk about him requesting wisdom. But I'm concerned we don't define his request quite accurately. Solomon's request for wisdom is quite narrow. He wants wisdom in administrating his role as the king of Israel. He wants to be a good king who rules wisely, who makes judicious decisions worthy of the vastness of their population at that time. And so as we read on, there are those examples, like the two women who've been living together, they each have a baby, and one rolls over on her baby and smothers it during the night and, and wakes up and realizes and swaps it out for the other one. And so the next morning, the two of them come to Solomon asking for him to adjudicate. Which of them is the real mother? Which one should take care of this one living baby? And there's some quite interesting ancient paintings of that judgment scene. This big, strong, burly guy's got the leg of a child and a sword in one hand as some painter's way of illustrating what was about to happen from his perspective. And the real mother says, no, let her raise him. And the one who's smothered her own son accidentally, but is deceptive enough to try to take the other, says, go ahead and kill him. And Solomon knows from their oppositional responses which one's the real mother. She would give up her son to live And the people began to be in awe of Solomon's capacity for discerning the truth behind hard situations. 
And the record goes on to tell us that God not only gives him administrative wisdom, but he's going to give him more. Second Chronicles 1.11, God said to Solomon, Since this is your heart's desire, and you've not asked for wealth, riches, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you've not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given you, and I will also give you wealth, riches, and honor, such as no king who was before you ever had, and none after you will have. Remember what Solomon's heart's desire is. First Kings chapter 11 verse 10, that other reading of Israel's history, and the lives of their kings especially, says God warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen. In Kings, Solomon serves as a cautionary tale. I don't use the word tale in the sense of fiction. He's an example of what happens when you've got everything and you use it badly. But that Inappropriate use comes out of a failure to listen to God. In the context there in 1 Kings 11, is specifically mentioning him building a temple to Chemosh, one of the foreign gods of the neighboring nations, for whom there were even child sacrifices. To honor one of his many wives from the many nations around. Solomon's whole life is consumed in being a powerful, successful king. And even with his many marriages, Kings warns us that it's Solomon's positioning himself with alliances with the surrounding kingdoms by marrying the daughters of the kings there. In our Sunday school class recently, we've been looking at the first part of James in this issue of divided loyalties pulling us in the wrong direction and creating an instability within our spirit 
Because we're to have sole allegiance to God. And that's Solomon's failing. Let's get back to Ephesians 1. It, it's a lot more joyful passage. Uh, I want you to notice what Paul prays for. It, it's not what Solomon's requesting. And Paul isn't praying for himself. He's praying for others. If I'd had a slide, there not only would have been pictures of Solomon, there would have been the opening slide that says, praying for wisdom and insight. And then later there would have been a slide that there would have been a big red slash through praying, and it would have been changed to the word interceding. One of the dangers of a lot of our talking about asking for wisdom is we're primarily focused for ourselves. God, give me wisdom. Give me insight. Let me know which job to take. Let me know where to move. Let me know how to direct my affairs. And I'm concerned that sometimes those are at risk of being more like Solomon than like Paul. Paul's, I mean, Solomon's glory is wrapped up in his ruling. Historically, especially since the Industrial Revolution here in the U.S., male identity has often been associated with our jobs, our place of employment, our rise to power within that employment, our ability to provide for ourselves and to have luxuries. From the outside looking in, there are times when it appears maybe our motivation isn't that much different than Solomon's. The location of our influence might be different. But our internal motivation. Ever since I heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus, your love for God's people everywhere, I've not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Who in your life do you pray for constantly? I would imagine if we polled a lot of the women in this room, it's children and grandchildren. We want our offspring to grow and flourish in our world. And that's an incredible place for intercession. 
For men, once again, I think there are times when we're more at risk of praying primarily about our jobs than anything else. When it comes to prayers for wisdom. I pray for you constantly asking the God, or asking God, the glorious Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. See, Paul isn't focused on blanket wisdom. He's got a laser-pointed prayer of wisdom He's praying for the people of Asia who are believers that they will grow in their knowledge of God. Some of our wisdom comes from experience. Many years ago, Deborah did most of the teaching of our children to drive. Uh, she's a little more patient, a lot more patient, and they knew that, and so they wanted her to help them drive. Uh, but every now and then, when they were on their learner's permit, I was the one in the vehicle with them. And I remember one specific morning, we were coming here to Stones River, and Rachel, our daughter, was driving our van. And we come in on Broad Street, and... Uh, you know where Party Fowl is on Broad Street? Okay, there's a little bit of a knoll there, a little bit of a rise that drops down toward Church Street. And we came over that rise, and we had a green light at the intersection with Church Street. And Rachel was still moving on, and I said, Rachel, you need to take your foot off the gas. But Dad, it's green. Rachel, you need to slow down. It's going to change. And right at that moment, it changed. And so she slowed it down. She had taken her foot off the gas when I encouraged her to, but she was still questioning. And we get there, and she stops, and she said, How did you know? And my first thought was, I don't know. I just knew. And then I... I, I reflected on what I had seen and there were no vehicles on Broad but there was a line of vehicles on Church Street and I knew that intersection had sensors in the road and the timer had likely been going for a while before we topped that rise and it was going to give Church Street the green arrow. And so I shared from that experience. And the incredible thing about the more you have those kinds of experiences, the more you do them almost automatically, and you don't have any real recollection. It's not a conscious, it's more of a subconscious decision of recognition. Uh, ben Austin's story, usually when I would tell that one, was about one of his sons that he was teaching to drive, and they were coming up on an area where there was a notorious nightclub, beer joint, whatever name you want to use for it. And Ben told Joseph, was it? Yes, Dan Daniel, Daniel uh, you better slow down up here. 
And he said, why, Dad? Well, because there's a beer joining. I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I've seen drunk people pulling out this time of the night. So being aware of your surroundings, being aware of the dangers in a given area is a part of how we grow in our wisdom, experientially formed wisdom. Paul isn't primarily addressing that. And he calls it, or the, the text translates it, at least the New Living, spiritual wisdom. Is that in some of the other translations? Spiritual wisdom and insight there in verse 17. Spirit of wisdom. This is a divine infusion. Of clear thinking about God's character, about God's nature, about God's holiness, about God being the ultimate promise keeper and way maker. Paul knows for these believers in that province that trouble's coming. This is the very area where Rome exhibited incredible persecution over the next 150 years or so. Economic pressures will be brought to bear on whether or not believers will say Jesus is Lord without also saying but so Caesar. So that you might grow in your knowledge of God. So that you'll understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe. The same mighty power that raised Jesus from the dead. And seated him at the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul's prayer for their spiritual wisdom and insight, the spirit of wisdom, is that they'll focus more and more of their attention on God and His abilities on God and His nature. In James chapter 1 that we were studying in the Sunday school class, there was this Admonition to, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously. It's God's character that deep, transformative, meaningful prayers and intercession are grounded in. I guess I'll have to reach out to Rachel this afternoon and say, you, you were in all kinds of illustrations this morning. She had grown used to it. Uh, no, I won't even go there. But uh, <clears throat> we went to a, 
graduation over in Lincoln County. One of Deborah's nieces, that's right. And they had a prayer as a part of the graduation. And it was a young lady who prayed and she read her prayer. And it was very obvious. She unfolded her paper and she read it. And after it was over, Rachel, uh, who can be incredibly empathetic, but at times also quite judgmental, said, well, that prayer wasn't any good. It was just read. She should have just prayed from her heart. And I questioned her a bit, and I said, Rachel, you remember the book of Psalms? Well, yeah, Dad. I said, those are all written prayers. Uh, Paul's letters have some pretty powerful prayers. The Magnificat is Mary's prayer of praise. We've got a lot of biblical examples of written prayer. Maybe it's not so wrong even though it's not what we're accustomed to out of our extemporaneous culture, subculture of church. She didn't respond to my further comments. She was pondering it. I don't know that she ever decided that she liked written prayers, but anyway. Uh... Around that same time, I had a friend, email was something that I was beginning to get into a little bit. You know, it's, for some of you young people, it's hard to imagine there ever being a time without email, but there was, and it wasn't the dark ages. It's not been that long ago. Um, who asked for prayers, and several people responded by saying, we'll pray, we'll pray, we'll pray. And this particular request came back around about a week later and I realized I had said I would pray and I hadn't prayed. And I felt convicted. Justly so. And I began to ponder, how, how do I deal with this? I had a college professor who kept a very meticulous list of things that he prayed for. He would have probably added that to his list and been diligent with it. If I made the list, I'd usually end up losing it, misplacing it somewhere, couldn't find it. So that, that really hasn't worked for me. And I decided I would start just writing out a prayer, typing it out, and emailing it to the person. Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, this is what I'm praying for you now. As my own personal discipline. And after I'd done that a little bit, I got an email back from someone that I had prayed for, and they said, thank you so much. I've printed that out, and I read through it periodically, and it encourages me. And then I felt like, oh, I need to probably do a little more thinking about my praying, not just be so spontaneous. And I remembered a, a, a preacher years earlier whose definition for Biblical prayer is pleading God's promises. So I started trying to be more mindful as I was doing my daily Bible reading if I could find a promise that I might pray for someone. 
I'd highlight that and keep a, a list. And I began to develop some sort of nuggets for praying for people for different kinds of situations. Health crises, job situations, life struggles. What are the promises that God's made in His Word that could be applied to those situations? And I would pull one of those nuggets and put it in the email, but then pray it specifically for that person as well as I knew them, their situation. Paul didn't have email, but he sure prayed for a lot of people. I think he probably did have a prayer list. And he prayed very specifically in this situation for their wisdom and insight. So what? That's a two-word question that started popping in my mind the last few years that I was the regular pulpit minister here. Okay, John, we, we've, we've spent this time exploring wisdom, what it is, what it isn't, where it ought to be applied, where maybe it's not so important that it's applied uniformly there. What difference should this make in our lives? When Brandon encouraged folks to participate in the daily Bible reading, go through the whole Bible in chronological order, one of the things that he asked is that you would pray. The rest of us who aren't doing it would pray for those who are. I want to give some specificity to your prayer for those folks. Pray that they will especially see God at work through time. God isn't bound by time. But our experience of it is within time. The most important thing that we can see, whether it's Kings or Chronicles or Samuel or one of the others, is what does this reveal about God at work? About God's purposes, about God's desire, about God's passions. In hopes that those become our passions. Lord, how, how can we approach these situations in expectation, in anticipation? That you're going to do something that when we step back after it's happened, we're going to say, wow, only God. Only God could have done that. We don't need the wisdom to know how He's going to do all of those things necessarily as much as we need the wisdom to really bank on the fact that it's His work we get to participate in, not our kingdom building. Solomon's 
posturing and structuring and arranging his armies and, and building the cities of protection created a situation that when Rehoboam comes to power after Solomon's death, one of the things the tribes of Israel push for, especially the ten northern tribes, is that he would lower the taxes and show compassion for the people because their fa his father had exacted a heavy toll on the people. And even in that situation, Rehoboam asked the older advisors who had advised his father, what should I do? And they said, lower the taxes. And he asked his younger, his, his age peers who were his advisors, and they said, you tell them your little finger is bigger than your father's waist. And he had high taxes, you're going to have even higher taxes. And Rehoboam's pride was puffed up, and he took the bad counsel. And it resulted in the rending of the nation into two places of political power. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to look to? Who are you going to cry out to during 2024? Don't be like Solomon and Kings. Seek the heart of God in Chronicles. Will you pray with me? Father, we confess that it's easier to unpack these ancient texts than it is to apply them and live them consciously with intent and purpose. So I pray for your people that you will give them spiritual wisdom and insight their knowledge of you and your character and your purposes and your leading will shape who they are and who they become. Lord, we confess that at times we are so focused on our self-determination, we don't listen to you. We thank you that you are a God of grace and you call us back. You forgive us. Here in this year, help us to truly intercede for one another. For all of your people throughout this world. To grow in our wisdom of focusing on you to grow in our knowledge and expectation that you are a God of power at work for good in our world. And that we'll tap into that. That we'll learn not only where you're working, 
but we'll discern where you would have us join in with you in that work so that you get the praise, so that you get the glory, for you are worthy. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.